1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1 Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, good morning. Here we go. How do you encourage... A young church that is full of recent followers of Jesus. How do you encourage a local church that has no mature believers to model following Jesus, which is a good thing, but it's a hard thing? How do you encourage a local church that is very mixed culturally, made up of Jews, Greeks and significant women. A local church that saw its city riot against the gospel and the team that brought it to the city had to leave after three weeks. A local church that after Paul's removal was experiencing social exclusion and intolerance due to their faith in Jesus doing the good thing of following Jesus, but doing the hard thing of following Jesus. You find that story in Acts chapter 17, if you want to know. But come here this morning. How do we encourage Egbeth Community Church as we enter a new phase of life? How do we encourage young followers of Jesus who've been recently baptized and who now face the reality of following Jesus for 70 years. No pressure there then, is there? How do you encourage mature believers to model following Jesus as Lord and we don't become complacent or cynical? And how do you encourage believers who have doubts and fears about following Jesus 
And it's a hard thing to do because of those wobbles that we all know. Well, I don't have to make up an answer. The answer is in 1 Thessalonians, and I'm thankful for that. So we're going to do chapter 1 only. There's a whole letter here that is before us, but uh, chapter 1, and we have two things to say, uh, and they're quite simple. Number 1, Paul is thankful that the church belongs to God. The church belongs to God. Paul and his team have arrived in Europe, Acts chapter 16. They've been moving east-west along a major Roman road, and they're in the providence of Macedonia. They started in Philippi, Acts 16. There was a riot. They got kicked out. They moved to Thessalonica, five days travel down the road. They have this three-week stay and then they have to go because there's another riot in the city because of the gospel. They go to Berea, and there's more social unrest there, so they have to leave. Paul ends up in Athens with a stopover, does some mission work, and then moves to Corinth where he stays for 18 months. And it's in Corinth that he writes to this church in Thessalonica to encourage them to keep on doing the good thing that is following in Jesus, though it's the hard thing. And so as Paul opens his letter, he starts not with a church, but with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the local gospel church, including ourselves, enjoys the privilege of this relationship. Look at Verses 1, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. The local gospel church belongs to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if God the Father and God the Son were talking to each other and looking down on Thessalonica, they would say, there's our church in Thessalonica. Take it to us now. What is God the Father and God the Son saying as we gather together in Egbert Community Church? They are saying, possibly, I've not got a hotline to heaven, our church in Egbert. Our church in Halewood our church in Liverpool, our church wherever else you want to mention. And that's how Paul starts. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us therefore remember this morning that the local gospel church, including this one, belongs to God. We need to hear that. The local gospel church is God the Father's work through the Son and by the Spirit, grace and peace. And therefore, Paul, in the light of that, in verses 2 to 3, then says some things that we need just to reflect on for a moment. We always thank God for all of you, continually mentioning you in our prayers, 
We remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole gospel team of Paul, Silas, and Timothy saw the church this way. Notice the we language in verse 2 here. Paul was a humble team player, and he never stood apart from his team. So we have a staff team. We're thankful for you. And we pray that as humble team players, you will do your part in overseeing God's church in Egberth Community Church. We're thankful for the eldership. You're a team, aren't you? You're humble team players overseeing the church on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's his church. There are many specific ministry teams amongst us for which we are thankful. You're a ministry team under God the Father and the Son. You've got to see yourselves in that way, as I must. And as a whole body, we're a team. Somebody brought me a T-shirt just as I left, Lincoln. I, I only wear it in bed, I have to say. Too much information. But anyway, it's Team Jesus. Well, it's good to remember at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm part of Team Jesus, isn't it? We're Team Jesus, friends. That needs to sink home to us emotionally and functionally as well as theologically. The whole gospel team on this occasion in First Thessalonians saw it that way. And therefore, the big focus is on God, not the team. The team is important. The team is involved. But the focus is on God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And therefore, the heart of the team is giving thanks to God, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, verse 2. Notice that. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul didn't say, some of you, the cute ones, the nice ones, all of you. It's inclusive. Let's not think our culture has come up with inclusion. It was the gospel that got there way before them. All of you, and always, continually praying and remembering in prayer, verse 3. What was the memory of this gospel team of Paul, Silas, and Timothy as they thought about the Thessalonians that they're separated from? They were gospel-changed people. And they saw them as gospel-changed people because that's what God the Father, through the Son, does in the church. Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father does through the Son, by the Spirit, in all his gospel communities, all of them. And is still doing it here. Let's take it this way. Jesus so trusted the Father that he worked hard in an obedient life for us. Jesus so loved the Father that he labored hard on the cross for us, and he finished the task 
or bringing salvation to our lives. Jesus was so full of hope in all of that that he would produce a perfect people that he endured and kept on doing the good thing even though it was hard. And that is how they were living in Thessalonica, trusting the Father and working hard, laboring in love for the Father and the Son because the Father and the Son had labored hard in love for them, and they kept on doing it because of the great hope of a perfect people living with Jesus and the Father forever. And that's how we live as a family. Verse 3. The beautiful transforming grace of God. That's it. So put it this way, if you're still with me. Paul doesn't say, you're an amazing church in Thessalonica. That's way unhelpful, isn't it? What he says is, amazingly, you're in the Father, and you're in the Son, and you're part of that family, and you're doing well. Paul is thankful to God that the church belongs to God. And then it, the second point is that he tells the gospel story that created the church, verses 4 to 10. We'll keep this moving. Paul now moves to their united gospel story that had occurred in his three-week visit uh, to Thessalonica. It was only three weeks. For we know, brothers, loved by God, we're remembering this, we're thinking about this, that he has chosen you. We know. The whole team knows. The church knows. And it's interesting that Paul as he goes into verse 4, doesn't say, you know, when I arrived in Thessalonica with Paul and uh, with Silas and Timothy, when we arrived, no, he doesn't say. He says, when the gospel came. Did you get that? When the gospel came. What hasn't left Egbert, as thankful as we are for those who have moved out from among us for gospel reasons. What hasn't left us? The gospel. Sorry, that was a bit shouty. Oh, thank you. Oh, I'll shout more now then. <laughs> you see, before, before Paul came with the team to preach the gospel, the church was already in the heart of God. Brothers and sisters, loved by God, he has chosen you. Our gospel came. Now it's nice to get chosen in love, isn't it? God chose in love the sun to give us light and warmth. Anybody got an issue with the sun? God chose in love to give us water so we can live on the earth. Anybody got a problem with water this morning? Well, you may not have any water in your house, but that's another story. God chose in love to let us live in a prosperous society with all our needs met and many extras included. God chose in love to send his son to give us eternal life. God's loving choice. 
I told the young people this, or the children this morning an unhappy story of when I, I, I didn't get picked for the football teams. Two captains were called out to pick teams and there we all stood and all the best players got chosen first and they went down the line to the lesser wanted ones and I stood alone last, truly unwanted. Thank you very much indeed. You're a very callous person if you didn't join in that. I didn't get picked. I joined a team, but neither of the two teams wanted me. Was I rubbish at football? Well, in my view, I was pretty good. They didn't want me because they didn't like me. For some reason, I can't work out. Over the years, I've discovered when you're not wanted, one of the things that can help us emotionally deal with that unwantedness is to realize that we are picked by the Lord Jesus Christ, in, by the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us, even though he knows the worst about us. Loving choice. I also shared with the younger folk today a happy time when I got picked, when I got married. And there's a photograph that I had with me of us sitting in the taxi after the service, smiling. Changed our lives for 40 years. Some of that has been good and some of that has been tougher. But in that loving choice, we learn to do the good things for each other, even though they can be hard. And I must listen to this truth about the Father lovingly picking us to be part of his family. When I'm at home sometimes and I have a favorite piece of music on, what I do is I put the headphones on. I do not want this music distorted. And I do not want this music to have to be put down in volume. And so I put the headphones on. And there I go to listen to this. And this truth that the Father loves us and has chosen us in the Son, we must not distort the sound with other voices. We must not diminish the truth. Put the headphones on. Listen to the truth. For it's the big point of the passage. Everything else comes out of that. And Paul knew it, and so did the Thessalonians. And with that in mind, two things as we finish. He shows us the Spirit moving in gospel preachers. Look at verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we, we prove to be among yourselves. Do you realize that in preaching the Bible, whether we do it loud or not loud, whether we do it in a chatty way or a, uh, a way that is more de a declaration, which is more my style, I have to say to you that as preachers we know, or Bible teachers in Sunday school or wherever else it might be, there's a deep impact upon ourselves. 
This is the gospel. And so it doesn't just come in words, though words are being used. No, it comes in the power of the Spirit and with deep conviction. That's what's in my heart this morning as I stand before you. I stand before you obviously using words. I hope the Holy Spirit is helping me do what I do with his power. But there is a deep-rooted conviction that this is the gospel that you need to hear, and so do I. Now, Rich was telling us what conviction uh, or assurance is the other Sunday, wasn't he? Remember those men on the Emmaus Road with their flippy flops on? And uh, they had such a deep conviction that they were prepared not only to die for this conviction, but now live for it. For they got up having recognized the risen Lord Jesus with their flippy flops on, and in the dark, and they ran back probably three and a half hours to say maybe, maybe just one sentence. What do you think it was? We have seen the Lord. I'd have left it to the morning and taken a bus. Only they didn't have buses, did they? That's conviction, isn't it? Conviction is what you'll die for. It's what so burns in your heart and my heart. There's no question that we'll die for it. And therefore we'll live. That is the impact that the gospel must make upon a preacher or a teacher of the Bible that opens up the gospel to a youth group, to a Sunday school class, to a one-to-one situation in a, coffee gr- in a coffee house, or the family gathering together on the Sunday morning. If that's what comes to the preacher, then the same impact is made on the hearers, verses 6 to 10. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much fl- affliction with, the, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia. It was mirrored in the church. Preaching is not about information, is it? It's not even about intellectual correctness, though it ought to be. But it's about transformation under God. The mirror reflects what's there, doesn't it? I go to the mirror to shave every morning. I, I, I have, well, there it is. There I am. It's reflecting back to me. You know, I might prefer somebody else, or I maybe prefer that my, my looks were way more stunning than they are. But they're not. The mirror tells me who I am, at least facially. And that's the same with the church. As the gospel is preached, as the Bible is opened up, as the Spirit continues to do his work through the preacher, then he mirrors in your life and in my life. We imitate the people who have the biggest influence on our affections. Yes, we do. Paul modeled the gospel of Christ because Christ had the biggest impact on his affections. And the church imitated him because Christ had the biggest impact 
on their affections. They received the word under much affliction with great joy in the Holy Spirit. So two things in all of that that come out of this. They, they imitate what they have come to see and hear. They modeled a true communal following of Jesus, verse 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. They became an example, not just to one another, though that was true communally, but it was also influencing other churches in the region. So what kind of church should we be? We should be a gospel-centered church. We should be those trusting in the Father and working hard. We should be those laboring in love for the Son who labored in hard, uh, the, did the hard yards on the cross. We should be those full of hope and therefore keeping on going, doing the good thing, which is the hard thing, because one day it will all climax and we will all be perfected in the new creation, the church. That's what we're to model. We're not only to model it to one another. We're to model it to other churches in Liverpool. I don't know how we do that. But it's a challenge to us, I think, to, uh, and an encouragement to us. We can help other churches by just being a gospel-centered church that takes seriously what we're saying. Well, what's your church like in Egbeth? Well, it's a comment well, we're focusing on the triune God. We've still got the Bible at the core of all that's going on. The gospel is still being preached. Evangelism is still going on. We're still caring for each other. Sounds good to me. We are to model it. But then, not only are we to model... But the gospel message is to be proclaimed. Look at verses 8 following. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth, sounded forth, everywhere. So we need not to say, need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we have had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The message rang out, sounded forth, and the content is clear, verses 9 and 10, and the, and the great gospel change that went with the content is equally clear, verses 9 and 10. It's not enough to say, well, we're clear on the content, as important as that is. Well, what about the gospel transformation that is to take place in that? And that's what rang out, reverberated, or echoed, literally. So if I was to blow a trumpet, which I'm not going to do, there would be a clarion call, a note ringing out. When I was about 10 or 11, I was in the playground one day, and I... Uh, it rang out from my life that my dad was an amazing cake decorator. So I told some friends about it. And by the end of the day, it didn't go everywhere, but it went around the playground that, that Kinnaird's dad 
is an amazing cake decorator. That's what's happening here. The gospel has come to the Thessalonians. They have not only welcomed it as the word of the Lord, but they have been changed by it. And now, now it's, it's going out. It's reverberating around the province. And even more amazingly, 2,000 years later, the same gospel that was preached in Thessalonica is here. Here. In this room. That's encouraging, isn't it? And what was the content and the change? Well, they had turned from God from idols to serve the true and the living God. It was a city full of gods. Greek gods, Egyptian gods, Roman deities, cults of every description in the culture. And now the true God has come in the gospel to Thessalonica. God the Father through his Son, the Lord Jesus. And this church turns away towards the true and living God. Same for us. We may not have Greek and Roman deities, but there is idolatry all around us in the culture, isn't there? And all of those idols are calling out, come and worship, come and worship, come and be like us, come and be saved by us. But they're false gods. They're not the true and the living God. So we turn away, young and old, we turn away whatever they may be. So for me, it's an idolatry of comfort in retirement. An easy life now, I've done my bit. I turn away from that. I continue as an older man to try to teach the Bible and the gospel when I could just sit down and shut up. Turn away from these things. We have turned away from idols to serve the true and the living God. And not only that, but to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. We need to take that seriously, I think. There is a day of wrath coming and we need to hear that the judgment that fell on Jesus will not fall on us on that day. And he has been raised from the dead as proof that it won't. But that's not true for everybody, is it? And so the gospel must ring out in evangelism and in witness through our lives. We must hear the truth here. Need to put the we need to put the headphones on. We mustn't let the sound be distorted. We must not let the truth be diminished. So our prayer is that we might increasingly, and I'm not dismissing the last 15 years of church history here, not at all, building on it. We want to increasingly be a gospel-centered and gospel-shaped church doing the hard but good thing of following Jesus in our cultural time 
and therefore we need to come and take our wobbliness back to the certainty that God has lovingly chose us in his son. It's the only resting place, my friends. Billy Graham, as I finish, went to Cambridge University to do a mission in 1955. There was much opposition to his coming. He was regarded as an uneducated man with dangerous views about salvation. Nothing changes. He spent three, the first three nights of that mission trying to be, therefore, more intellectual, quoting all kinds of scholars. But on the fourth night, he felt convicted that he had truly abandoned that which he had been preaching all his life. And so he focused on the sacrificial blood of Christ, and he did so as he traced it through the whole of Scripture and took 45 minutes to do it. Well, Jesus took three and a half hours on the Emmaus Road. And Dick Lucas was sat there between a professor of theology and a chaplain. They were not happy men. This dangerous view of salvation was being laid before the intellectuals of the nation. And they were convinced that it would not do a thing. 400 young men and women stayed behind to trust Christ that night. as the Spirit worked in the preacher and the truth, and it was mirrored in the hearers. Dick Lucas was in Birmingham Cathedral many years later, and he was talking to a pastor, and he asked the pastor how he'd become a Christian. Well, he says it was in Cambridge in 1955 on a Wednesday evening. And I walked out thinking for the first time in my life, Christ really died for me. I was happy. And the deep impact of that gospel upon his own heart became a conviction that transformed his life, that enabled him to lead a church in a gospel-centered, gospel-shaped way. Let us pray. Take a moment, please. Triune God, we are your church. You chose us before you made the world. You redeemed us through the hard work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And the Spirit brought us to life when we came to realize that Christ died for me and my sins. Happy people. We're not always happy. We have wobbles, we have doubts, we have fears. But we thank you, our Father, that in you, because we're your family, we can do the hard thing, which is the good thing, of following you 
and building each other up to follow you so that truly other Christians are encouraged within the city and it might ring out from us into the culture that we have turned from idols to serve the true and the living God and to wait for our, for our Savior Jesus from heaven who has been raised from the dead who will rescue us from the day of wrath. We worship you together in Jesus' name.